This is RevTech Podcast, where we discuss everything from business processes to measurement and technical alignment. The RevTech mission focuses on effectively managing and optimizing the go-to-market strategy through methodologies, tools, and best practices. We discuss the success criteria and technical fit guides for decision-making and ensure solutions align with the business goals. In this episode, our guest is Bill Cantor, co-founder and managing partner, and Brian Lewis, co-founder at Funnelcast. So, welcome. Nice to be here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to have both of you here. This is our first episode with two guests, so it should be a fun adventure. So let's start off with an easy question. What is the high-level pitch of Funnelcast? The high-level pitch of Funnelcast, it's right on our website. It's statistical process control for B2B sales. You know, if you uh, look at what happened in factories long ago, the engineers figured out uh, how to use statistics to run the factory more efficiently. And we're trying to apply many of the same disciplines and techniques to B2B sales, which really hasn't been done before. Cool. I'm excited to dig into exactly what that means. So you're both co-founders. What made you think about starting Funnelcast? Where were you before and, and how'd you come up with this idea? Well, Brian and I were collaborators at a database management system company eight, 10 years ago. So we got to know each other there and found each other to be kindred spirits. We went our own separate ways. I was working on a consulting project uh, where a client wanted to understand their win rates better. And that kind of begat the whole, you know, metric that, you know, really drives what we do. And I, I didn't know if what I was doing was right. And so I had kind of invented and groped my way towards how to compute. Win rates are really complicated and, you know, they're actually more tricky than, than most people realize. And so I, I called my friend Brian. And I said, Brian, tell me if I'm doing this right. And is, is this valid? And Brian uh, listened patiently and at the end said, yeah, you've got a textbook example of something called the Kaplan-Meier survival model. And that begat Funnelcast. <laughs> and uh, you have something to add to that, Brian? No, no. Bill handed me a pile of spreadsheets and he had analyzed things very nicely. And, it, it, you know, I recognized the technique he was using. I'm a mathematician, not really a statistician, but I had been doing some work in epidemiology at Montefiore on Albert Einstein College of Medicine and um, recognized what Bill was doing was something that we do in epidemiology all the time. Uh, you know, instead of modeling like stages of progression of a disease, which is kind of a bummer to work on, you know, modeling stages of a long-term sales process like in B2B sales can be handled in exactly the same way. And that's a much nicer outcome than like death or something, right? So it was a much nicer problem to work on. I like the positive spin here. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, this, it's, it's actually the, 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 the math behind it is exactly the same as what they use in epidemiology. The only difference is the quote hazard that they model in in epidemiology is usually a negative thing. We're modeling a positive thing. It's yeah. a successful sale. So how did you guys come up with a model for this? I mean, when you talk about the mathematical models and statistical models, there is a set of variables that you consider, right? And you know, when you talk about the win rates, I agree with you. It's a very difficult problem to solve in a business because there are so many variables that each business is in each industry and it has a different teams that are getting involved and these opportunities just going through these motions between these teams, right? So how did you 
narrow down the list of variables for your model? And yeah. is that work done or are you still exploring? It's a really good question. We kind of like to follow like that Occam's razor principle, like keep things as simple as possible and get something reasonable out of it. Um, and so kind of the basic model that we start out with, I mean, really the fundamental thing that makes us slightly different than what everybody is else is doing is that instead of thinking of win rates as a static thing, like just a 50% of things are one or 25% of these things are one, we, we kind of realized uh, through this connection with epidemiology that, you know, it depends on, on your time frame. Like, sure, in the long run, forever, 50% of these things might be one, but between now and the end of the quarter, maybe only 10% of them are one, right? So win rates are really a curve instead of just a single point statistic. And, and that's kind of the main driving idea. And that kind of really basic idea requires almost no data. It's like, when when was a deal created and when was it won? You don't even care when it was lost. And so the cool thing about starting with such an almost ultra basic model like that, it's surprising what you can get out of it, number one. And number two, the great thing about really simple models like that is that they're kind of immune to data hygiene problems. Like a lot of people will say, well, we're not updating our lost deals regularly and so on. We got all these hygiene problems in our data. But if you don't really care about that, you kind of elided that entire problem and you can get to a real solid statistic without the most robust process possible. I mean, we found working with clients that all of the really interesting data in CRMs and other data repositories in a business start to become super interesting the closer you get to a sale. Like, especially in B2B, we're thinking of kind of longer term sales for the most part. And, you know, when a sale starts out, all those different variables, you might have all kinds of variables. We see so much going on in these CRMs and there's lots of really interesting stuff. You know, you've got like uh, ideal customer profile scores from all kinds of different vendors driving those types of really interesting analytics and, you know, just other business segmentation things. You might have sentiment analysis coming out of documents, trans going back and forth between clients, just tons and tons of really interesting data. But when a deal is started, most of that isn't so relevant. You barely even know, have a good guess as to what the close date would be. I mean, a be the best way to guess for a close date for a new sale is to say what happened historically for deals that look like this, you know, and we'll say, oh, that took five months to close. So let's just pick five months out. But as you get closer to that five month time horizon, many, many more of those signals become much more relevant and you can bring those in. So we tend to try to start with the most basic model possible and enrich that as you get closer to the endpoint. Sorry, that was so long. No, no, that's very relevant. And I think you mentioned a lot of interesting things that are either in use or they are living in the in a existing process that many companies really follow. Right? Like you mentioned two things that are extremely important in that regard. So number one is data hygiene. Right? It's a it's a nightmare to for any, for any data analyst. Right? Data hygiene. Um, I, I had this com conversation probably hundreds of times with analysts and other teams, you know, how to really predict where we're going to land with our, our pipeline conversion to the finish line, right? So win rate. And very often pipeline hygiene is uh, one of those things that uh, we are raising, right? It's not necessarily something that will uh, dramatically change the output right away, but I think it's changing the learning process. So what's your take on this? And uh, do you think that 
data hygiene is is something that is helping you to learn and maybe your model is also learning to an extent but it's not overestimating the impact yeah so uh, on these win rates great great point um you know what what happens in any forecasting model is we're forecasting an aggregate number right if you look at individual deals the forecasts will always be wrong on an individual deal because you know an individual deal score might be 75% you're not going to get a fractional deal right you know so you know yes. uh, th they're always wrong um but in aggregate the the forecasts are are pretty good um or can be pretty good and uh, you kind of rely on that. That means that, however, that when you initially get started, if you've got bad data stage hygiene, you know the you, you can have a deal that's uh, underreported as you know being in discovery when it's really in contracts, or you could have somebody who's pushing it and saying, "I've got uh, this is on my commit list," even though it's only in uh, it hasn't even hit proposal stage yet. And you know those. Th kinds of things um the more data you have the more it washes out and you know it, it works out in the wash and everything you know comes out okay but you won't have really good fidelity on calling individual deals now what we find is that as people start to use our application we've embedded uh capabilities that kind of nudge the sales team to point out data hygiene issues so for for instance um somebody might set a close date to be a year in the future, but it's in contracts today. You know, something's not quite right about that. And we will flag that. And that kind of drives people to update them and you get better hygiene. And over time, you get higher fidelity forecasts at the individual deal level as well. That's a great feature. As someone who manages a sales team, I get told all the time, your team needs to be better at Salesforce hygiene. And I'm like, okay, but where do I even start with that? You know, there's there's hundreds of deals on a weekly basis. So that's a, a great feature to have nudged that along and then helps managers uh, actually pinpoint like, hey, you need to be make sure you're not doing this. Right. Yeah. I think I think Brian, you also mentioned lost deals. So what are the key learnings from from that part and how this is helping to enrich your model and increase the accuracy? The most interesting thing for us, I'll point out we blogged a lot kind of with geeky statistics blogs on this topic. A lot of people may find that interesting reading, but the lost stages for us are, are less relevant from a, from a predictive standpoint. However, we're not the only people that, that point this out. I think, um, you know, people are aware of this, but especially with like early deals, different companies manage how, what, what they view a sales accepted opportunity to be, right? Some people will relegate that only to the pre-sales and marketing departments. and and But uh, many companies have kind of a mixture zone, right? Where things are kind of coming into sales, but they're not yet fully fully accepted. And that part of the CRM is usually pretty f fuzzy. What's really interesting for a lot of those companies is to get those deals that aren't going to, that aren't going to close. They have no chance of closing out of the system as quickly as possible. So they don't waste time on them, right? In that sense, we want to make sure that deal, that we are aware that deals that are going, that we think are going to be lost are not time wasters, right? You get them dumped out of the system as quickly as possible and mm -hmm. move on to a, something that's more interesting to work on from a revenue standpoint. From our perspective, lost deals are not as relevant to it. The top line number, like we're going to predict you're going to do this much this year or this quarter or next month or whatever, uh, but more from a resource optimization standpoint, like you don't want to waste your time on deals that have no chance of closing. So we try to flag those. 
So improving like the qualified process and how yeah. are you going about that? Are you having customers input their ICP? Are you looking at historical trends? Like what actually informs the qualification of opportunities? Yes. Uh, so all of the above. Uh, all yeah. of the above. Yeah. Tre- trends for sure. Everything we do, like again, we're in some sense almost an anti AI company because it's, as Bill said, it's like statistical process control. We're bringing fairly basic statistical principles, but with some rigor into the process and trends of time series is a huge part of that, right? And almost everything we look at is temporal. We, everything has a trend associated with it and some sort of a basic model sitting on top of those trends. And ICPs are an, a really interesting. There are tons of, of companies that mainly focus on ICPs and there's a lot of really rich and interesting data in our clients' CRMs from those companies that we will use. We also have been looking at ICP-like not so much more abstract than ICP, but but definitely clustering generic opportunities together into clusters that have high probabilities of being one versus less high probabilities of being one based on, you know, the hundreds of attributes that are in the CRM. You know, that's not our main focus right now from a, from a, we're, we're really focused on sales optimization and forecasting, but that ICP part of it and the and the interface between marketing and sales, I think it personally, I think it's an underserved market analytically right now. Yeah, what you just described, it almost could inform an ICP to some degree, because I think sometimes companies say this is our ICP, but that's not actually where you're winning the deals. And so your data could actually yeah, help yeah, that. Absolutely. That's right. It's really hard to take those data all the way through, though, because often, you know, how do you tie an opportunity to a lead? When they don't have the same, you can't really join those tables together and there's a many to one relationship. So it, it's, it's not easy. There are many companies that are actually doing cool stuff there though, like, like Sixth Sense, for example, everybody uses Sixth Sense and it, it is pretty interesting stuff. You're smiling. <laughs> Lizzie and I, we, we, we both worked at a company. I mean, I used to work, she's still working there where we were competing against the Sixth Sense. Oh, so, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't mean, that's I mean... why. No, 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 it's okay. It's a. It's a good solution. I think what you got, what you guys work on is a really interesting and, and a, a field that has a lot of opportunities for more interesting ideas to come in down the road. Yeah, it's it's an interesting market that's constantly evolving. Sixth Sense is one of our biggest competitors because they're good at what they do. Yeah, they're good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, competitors are good. So going back to your point about ICP, I also learned this so many times that ICP usually is a, is a list of, it's almost like a wish list. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of companies defining this as a, okay, here are the attributes around the entities that I want to have in my install base. I want them to be my customers. So you go after maybe three, four different criteria, right? It's the geography, budget, you know, um, size, I don't know, number of engineers, number of function that you're serving, a product is serving, et cetera, et cetera, right? And here we go. Uh, then you look at the numbers, you're running this through the Zoom info, and you see, okay, that looks good. How much the coverage of these accounts will look against sales reps and so on, so on, right? So you have the process, but you really don't know how good that is in terms of scaling your business, right? So there's always a, a linkage between your product and the fit for that ICP, right? So that often is just out of sync. Right, you aiming for something bigger that actually you can serve, and you're probably missing a lot of these entities that you could scale more over the same uh, period of time. Right, so it's just a different pond. Yeah, one is bigger, one is smaller, but it's much harder to swim in the 
you know, in the ocean and you know, swim in a yeah. small lake, right? Yeah. So is your tool maybe helping to solve that? Like profiling the ICP based on the data that you take and you run through your uh, your model. Yeah, well, well, we have a beta version of a part of our product that actually does address this issue empirically. Um, so it's not the primary focus of what we've been working on, but we've done some pretty interesting work in this area. Even more directly in the product though, Bill, we can definitely, it's less prospective than what, what I think you're talking about, but given data in different segments of your business, we can put comparisons on a sound statistical footing across those segments. By that, I mean, you know, things like confidence intervals. And you can say, you can make an inference. Oh yeah, this is in fact more profitable than this or, or whatever, or has less resources required per sale or has higher win rates and expected value for a given period of time. Now that's different than like a prospective market. That's looking back at historical data and, and optimizing a sales process around historic data that, that you have enough data to draw statistics on. That's primarily where we have been focused. And many of our clients have used that pretty successfully to help you know adjust their sales process going forward. It may be useful to actually jump in and show you what that looks like here. So Brian was alluding to the fact that we can retrospectively, empirically measure and with confidence intervals, the win rates for uh, different segments of a business. So here's a uh, this is a fictitious data set, but it's, okay. it's kind of representative of what uh, many of our customers' businesses look like. They've got their business segmented by SMB, large, and enterprise businesses. And so I'm, I'm showing you here the SMB segment, and it's got a win rate curve that starts out, let's say, 8% on day one, meaning they got a lot of bluebirds that come in and close on day, you know, one day in the SMB market. But they you know, have a, a long tail. You can see that over the course of about uh, 300 days or so, they eventually get to a 38% win rate for deals started. That's a cumulative win rate. And the uh, contrast that to the large and the SMB markets here. So we can use this kind of analysis to identify what really is an ICP. I think that this is the SMB market is the way to roll here. But it turns out if you weight these curves by the average selling price in each market, which is what I've just done here, uh, you can see that the large and enterprise markets look essentially the same in terms of their value, but the SMB market is, is considerably below the other two marketplaces, market segments that this business serves. So using this kind of analysis, we can help people figure out where to allocate resources and uh, optimize sales without spending more just by focusing their attention. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think you, you, you mentioned something very important that is the balance between the different categories, right? Like how much of the large enterprise I want to acquire next year versus the SMB and how many resources I need to allocate to them to scale you know, a more optimized way. So that's another dilemma with the ICP. Once you have it, you start figuring out how many headcounts I need to put in each of these buckets, right? And that's, that's, a, that's a part of the planning process, which yeah, I want to discuss with you guys too, because the one thing is to adjust your forecast as you go. Another one is to predict something within the 12, 12 months or even beyond, which I think statistically is a pretty crazy idea to do, right? 
we know the reality of the business. Everyone will ask you for a next year plan, and everyone will ask you for the three years plan. Uh, it doesn't matter how ridiculous that question is, still the question will be in the room and you need to answer. So I have a question for you guys, like how you see this and how would you recommend everybody to approach this? Do you have a, a year out funnel Yeah, let me report? go run one yeah. in the background while, I, yeah, let me go do that. Yeah. We have all these funny catchphrases about forecasting, right? So e economic forecasting was invented to make astrology look respectable. That's, that's a funny, funny one. And, um, What's the Yogi Berra like one, Bill? Like predictions are really hard to, to make, especially, especially about, about the future. future. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no one knows what the future will hold, but what you can answer in any of those questions is present the most reasonable assessment based on recent historic behavior. I mean, that's the most you can do. I mean, the economy could blow up or it could go gangbusters. There could be all these exogenous variables that affect your business you know, a war or a, uh, you know, some uh, recession or something that the Fed can't predict. So no one, no one can really predict those things, but at least looking at recent behavior of the business, you can make reasonable estimates as to what's going to happen and put odds around them. Like what are, what is the most likely thing? What is the least likely thing to happen? What is the shape of that distribution? Are there some funny outliers there? If you say you can do more than that, you you can't, right? <laughs> I mean, that's about the best you can do. And so yeah. we tried to do that in kind of a rigorous way, but that's still easy to digest. Again, we're really pushing pretty simple statistics on people. The difference is that these statistics are directly related to business outcomes and factors that are that are easy to understand that are under your control, things like lead flow and advancing a deal. In the background on our synthetic or fake data set here, I ran a next year forecast for a business so I'm running this as of, you know, today for next year. So this is a, you know, 13-month forecast. And you can see the forecast consists of open opportunities that will yield about a million today, you know, next year that they currently have in their pipeline. And most of the forecast is tied to new activity that doesn't even exist, prospective funnel that will come in and close over the course of the year. And what we're showing in this top uh, segment here, you know, you can see the forecast here is uh, is down here is seven million happens to also be the target. I'll leave that the same. And over here is a nice little distribution, which we kind of focuses on essentially the odds of uh, you know making any figure. So you can see as I slide my my slider around here, let me zoom in on that. You can see. You know, if I want to say, let's get to, uh, you know, 7.8 million, you can see there's a 16% chance that that's going to happen here. Not particularly likely. So if my goal is to get to 7.8 7 .8 million for the year, that's not going to happen. But we give you insights into what you can control. Most of that is coming from this new business. So there's a lot of leverage here. And uh, if I drill in on the new business, I'm looking now at uh, for new new customers or the new this is a new business here means new logos. We're looking at a a win rate trend uh, over the last year. It's currently up a little bit over what it was for these deals. That's a good thing. And the the rate of generating new opportunities is also on an upward trend. So the, these uh, factors here are replicated up in this box here, and you can actually see the effects of changing any one of these things. These are historically where they've been. The Generate's been at about 1.6 deals per day. 
the, the win rate's been about 10%, and the average selling price is also shown over here. These are three factors that businesses work hard to try to control and, and increase all of them. It's pretty obvious that any one of these goes up, you, the business gets bigger. But you can see the effect here. What if, uh, if we boost this up to, uh, let's just plug in a number, say if we invest in marketing and you get two deal starts per day instead of you know, 1.6, you can see the, the, the shift, a dramatic shift in the likelihood of getting to any number. That's this orange curve here now. So before we were at you know 7.8 million, I think, something like that. And you can see that now the odds are about 71% to get there versus 14% before. So, you know, th lead flow, win rate, deal size, those are things that everybody understands and everybody tries to control. They, they can be hard to control sometimes, right? But, but nevertheless, you put programs in place to try to improve your win rates or change your lead, you know, improve lead flow and optimize deal size for prospective funnel that you're generating in your business. And you can see if his current trends carry forward into the future, you can see what effect they would have on the odds of making a given target. And similarly, you can adjust the, the things you have in, under your control for current pipeline opportunities in that table down below. You can see what happens if I advance opportunities. You can rank opportunities by their impact on the outcome there, on the, the forecast outcome. So you can look at which opportunities have the biggest impact to work on over the next year on this forecast, which ones are in danger uh, and maybe we should forget about because they're, they're already lost even though we haven't acknowledged that yet, and things like that. So on the one hand, it's really basic. It's just basic statistics. On the other hand, we're surprised we don't see analyses like this that often out there. And the clients that we have that use this kind of love this approach, right? They can really see what, you know, these factors that they all talk about, they really see directly how they, what impact they might have on the forecast if conditions continue in the future as they have in the recent past. So, Demetrius, you you asked, you know, how do you how do you make a forecast for the longer term? We we actually go out to a year plus, so you can you can actually do that. The start of this year, you can do next year, so you can actually do a conceivably a two year forecast. Beyond that, we haven't attempted to do so. Yeah, we don't have a three year. Uh, you mentioned three years. Yeah. We we actually don't do that the, right the now. The model the model could in theory be extended to do that, but we haven't done it. But the key thing is 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 what what we've said here. You, we're giving you the ability to control the factors that you're trying every day to improve, and understand if they if they continue, what will happen, and if they if you can affect a, a, a change in them in any one of them, what will happen as well. Yeah, and which which things to change that that will have the biggest impact. That's that's the thing. Yeah, zero in on that. I love this approach. I, I like the fact that you're also showing a lot of things that you're dependent on, right? And I, th I think uh, the conversation is really around that. It's just assume that it's given, right? You're going to have these deals. Yeah. Or you're going to have that pipeline. Now you actually, when I look at this upper left bar, it tells you how much you don't know yeah. and how much risk is, is generated by that, right? And then if you try to translate this into the distribution bell that you have on the right side, you start showing like how, how much risk you have and how hard it is actually to question the probability of that uh, higher number to happen, 
right? That's, so that's, that's because right. that's where conversation ends very often in the room, and somebody comes from the top says, "Hey, this is the number you're going to have." Well, well, so yeah, that's that's a great point. So so let's say somebody comes in and says the the number is ten million, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you know, yeah, that's... Um, it didn't update. Why not? Um, let's try that again. Uh, ten million. Hell, that's interesting. Uh, this is supposed to update, and that's a that's a bug. If I, um, if somebody says you want to get to ten million, you can see it down here. If I just without changing it, you say, well, how much lead flow do I need to get to to uh, get to ten million? Well, let's see if we. You I think, know, we I think ten million is off the there. scale, Bill. It's that's yeah. the problem. You're you're you can't. Oh, just, it's off the it, scale. It's there off it the is. Scale, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, so there it is. Actually, it did set the goal there. Yeah. Sorry, it was it, it was fine. Uh, but you can see, I need to get uh, this to. Uh, you know, somewhere around uh, 2.5, right? Okay, so you can have, with this information, you can have now an intelligent conversation about whether you have the resources and the market and the know-how to boost demand generation from 1.6 per day to 2.5 per day. Yeah, that's a that's a big jump, right? So this is exactly what I'm referring to. You know, somebody's asking you to something that is impossible. Some of these sharp uh, lines they they don't they don't indicate anything good. Right? So, well, not necessarily good. Well, well in right? this case, so. they, they're all actually the, the indicators are all good. This is going. You know, there's an upward trend in generating new business opportunities, and there's a slight upward trend in in the win rate. That's all good. But you know, how far can you realistically push these? It's not likely that you're going to get that high. That would be way out of the bounds of you know statistical process control would show you that the, you're asking for something to happen that has never happened and is kind of outside of the range of confidence intervals and measurements in the past. Exactly, and you need to keep in mind that you're operating within a certain time frame, right? Which is also also mm-hmm. another factor that people are forgetting about. You can't just double the output over the three months. That's if, right. You know, yeah. ramping process yeah. on the any rep is taking a 12, it yeah. tells you it tells you this it takes twelve months. So right. I think that's where you're ending up very quickly, you know, uh talking about money and the level of investment that you will require to get there. Sometimes it takes you weeks and um, you know a lot of bad blood in the organization before you even get into the room and you have a conversation with your boss about that because he or she is just simply unhappy with what you're presenting. Mm-hmm. So uh, having something like this is definitely facilitating this conversation and helps to explain this in a, in a very, I would say, simple terms, right? Like, hey, mm-hmm. here's the dependency. This is what you're asking me. And based on what I know so far, this is how it's going to look like. Yeah, I mean, and right. keeping yeah. it in terms of factors that everybody understands, like win rates and lead flows and should I advance this opportunity? Yeah. And yeah. It, I mean, the, the, that. Yeah. We think that that's like the foundation, right? You start there, and then even though we're kind of sometimes overly skeptical about AI, th- there's really a lot of cool things you can do to enrich this foundation, right? Like you, you can definitely bring to bear lots of cool AI-like technologies into the B2B sales process. But I think we, we definitely think you need to start with a solid foundation like this first, right? And then add to that. We think a lot of places are bringing AI in before they really get the fundamentals right. Well, like, what do we mean by that? Uh, the fundamentals, you know, y- you need to understand what to work on and when. And this model actually can tell you that. We haven't really gone into the, a lot of detail there. 
we mentioned that win rates are tricky. Um, they are really tricky because there is a temporal component to them. And if you don't have your win rates computed correctly, there's no point in applying artificial intelligence, or I shouldn't say no point. It's, it's it, the, the return on, your, uh, on applying artificial intelligence to uh, do some of the cool things you can do with artificial intelligence just isn't as great as if you could understand where to direct that effort. Where to direct the the the, uh, the resources? Yeah, I agree with you. There is a fallacy around this notion that you know there's a silver bullet for every single problem, and you know, I don't have to understand the problem. You know that's not a case. You have to understand dependencies that you have in your business and how your market really operates before you start directing your efforts in the, using and leveraging the AI. Otherwise, you will just shoot from the hip, and unlikely you're going to get the results you want. So. Mm -hmm. I'm 100% with you on this. Okay. So, guys, how do you go after your, your customers? Like, what, who is your ICP? We talk about the ICP <laughs> of your customers, but who is your ICP, right? Who are you, what are the customers you're looking for? Yeah, our ICP. Uh, so, we're, we're selling to B2B sellers who have a sufficient transaction volume to actually make our model work. We found, we, we kind of say that that's about uh, 50 transactions a quarter. And that, that's we, sales? Sales transactions per quarter, yeah. But, you know, we found that we have customers that are using us and they have fewer than 50, quite a bit fewer. And remarkably, the models, while they're not always as accurate, they do provide those insights that we were talking about, about which deals to work on to advance that will be most productive or which ones are, you know, way past their prime and should be ignored and uh, maybe should not be getting resources. Those are very useful things. Our target market is typically a B2B seller with 50 transactions a quarter. They uh, often have a, a direct sales presence and will uh, sometimes have some channels involved in the, in the sale as well, usually when they have good information from the channel, it helps. Yeah, that's one area uh, uh, where we do have a few issues. I, we, everybody, I think, like uh, sometimes we, ha we have some clients that work with partners and the data from their partners just kind of appear randomly as data dumps into Salesforce or whatever. And so all of a sudden there's like a bunch of activity from this partner that's like all in one day and then nothing from them for yeah. another month and then yeah. another big data dump from a partner. That those are harder to model. We we model them, but with not with the same kind of fidelity that we do if we have granular visibility into the into the CRM data. So that that is definitely a, an issue for us. It's kind of a data hygiene issue, right? Like you know, just dumping data in all at one day. Yeah, it's a data hygiene issue, but it's external to the company, and sometimes the partner doesn't want to tell them, or sometimes it's just the nature of the relationship. That's the hardest part. I. I manage the channel sales yeah. team. So we work with yeah. agencies. And <laughs> That's the right yeah. person on top. It's yeah. hard, right? Like, yeah. yeah. I see. We forecast them, Lizzie. They show up in that green bar that we showed in the prior chart. They're the, the new funnel, but they're, they're all bluebirds to us, right? Yeah, well, so, what's your experience? I mean, do you have advice for us, Lizzie? We <laughs> well, <laughs> I think the, the biggest like issue I've seen in the past is Basically, they'll take the direct sales model and just lump it onto the channel sales model and say, like, here's what you should go do. And it's like, no, you're working with two entities here. And so 
there's just differences to what the data says, to what the ICP needs to be, to all the what this um, sales cycle is. It's going to be longer. Typically, there's two parties involved. And so, if I mean, obviously, if you get the sales hygiene correct, uh, that's step one. But then with what you're doing, ideally, you'd come up with slightly different models if the sales hygiene was there, because it would be weird for it to look exactly the same. So, I mean, that's my biggest thing is I'm like, we can't treat these yeah. identically. There's yeah. overlaps, yeah, but they're yeah. not the same. Yeah. And, and each culture has uh, their own way of approaching the sales process, which could be tied to their products in the reseller's environment, which is different from the, the yeah. OEM's process. So yeah. you know, it's going to be different. Yeah. I would love for someone to go and solve this. So if you if you guys do it, let me know. Yeah, yeah we haven't <laughs> solved it. No, we haven't solved it. They show up in our forecast. Um, and it's not so bad if they're uh, relatively granular, but if they're mega deals that show up, you know, those are the hardest to anticipate, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Something that kept coming up for me was, obviously, I'm assuming you're integrated with Salesforce or another CRM and pulling all this data in, Yes, correct? right now, just yeah. Salesforce and, you know, ta- ta- like Excel import are the two ways. Okay. We are, we have a program in place to expand to like HubSpot, but right now we're we would love to be on HubSpot soon, but but right now it's Salesforce mm-hmm. primarily. Yeah, that's great to hear. What are you seeing when you're either selling to companies or onboarding them? Like, are they trying to do any of this in Salesforce now? Because there are some things you could build reports in Salesforce and track this. <laughs> are they trying to and failing? Do they not understand and need education about what to focus on? Like, what are you <laughs> seeing uh, and how are you getting That's people to onboard? That's an amazing question. Uh, we talk about this all the time, actually. Um, like Salesforce is so underutilized. There's like so much there that everybody has. And they a lot of people, times they don't even know it. It's amazing to us. And um, I think part of it is because Salesforce has been around for like a long time. And the interface is maybe not as modern and flashy as everybody else's UI, right? You know, obviously they want we want us to, them to buy our product, but they go and buy lots of other products when Salesforce actually has a lot of that functionality, like even in the, just the basic products. A great example is is uh, Salesforce has this feature called collaborative forecasting, and you know what it does is it it enables uh, sales individual contributors to uh, you know classify their forecast in a commit or you know upside whatever the, the terms are that they use. And roll that up to the next level, and then have a manager make a judgment call and invent their own number that their management override, and then do it again at the next level up, and so forth. Well, th- this is what a lot of third-party vendors are providing. Basically, it's been in Salesforce for years, and and very few people are using it. It's a very powerful application. So we're you know, you know, one of our mantras is use what you've got in Salesforce. People are trying to do things outside of Salesforce unnecessarily. I always wonder if like over years and years of doing things in Salesforce, it just becomes a disaster and people are like, let's just use a tool outside or is it just not having the capabilities to do it? I'm, I'm I curious. Think a lot of it is, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of cruft that builds up in Salesforce over the years. People with tables with like a thousand columns of data and it's just, you know, which are sparsely used. That's a, that's a problem. But I think a lot of it is the dated user interface. And I have to admit, when you look at a lot of the tools that people are using out there, they're slick user interfaces 
promote good use by the teams. The sales teams, they like to use it. It's got a really cool app. They can just use it on their phone or whatever, or even the computer interface is really slick. They don't have to mess around with a lot of details. And that ease of use and, and just niceness of the user interface, I think, is actually a really useful feature for a lot of the other tools that people are using out there alongside of Salesforce. So Salesforce kind of becomes like the database and then these tools are the interface. And I think that that even though that's like expensive, because like you're, that functionality is kind of redundant, if it helps people do a better job of managing their data, I'm all for it. I, that's that's fine, you know. I think you just nailed it. I, sometimes when I'm building a report in Salesforce, I'm like, I've been working on analytics and marketing tools for 15 years, and I cannot figure out how to edit this report. And I just don't yeah, feel like that yeah. should be happening. Demetrius, well, I'm well, sure you have a different opinion. There are, but There are limitations to yeah. Salesforce. So Salesforce is not really designed to be a, a time series database. You know, a lot of the sales analytics that we want to do are times they want to see how did things evolve over time. Part of what we do is we ingest in there. There are other vendors as well that ingest data and and you know essentially build out a time series database that make it easier to query. And that's good. That's that's a good thing. But you can do a lot in yeah, Salesforce yeah. still. Yeah, I I think uh, there's something with a uh, with a UI and user interface that is not incentivizing known data oriented yeah, people to use. Absolutely it. right. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's just so some people are simply, simply not designed to operate in that environment. If somebody wasn't an analyst in the, in the past or was not a, you know, someone in the operations finance space, for them, this doesn't, doesn't look like they want to do, right? And uh, anyone who can create something that is filling that gap in the form of simple dashboards, I think it's helping, it's helping a lot. Right, and I think the Salesforce is benefiting from that. But I agree with you. If you would really take some of these features that you already have in Salesforce, you probably could create a lot of yeah, better processes without spending a lot of we money. We have clients that that judiciously do that. They'll hire like kind of Salesforce AJAX programming experts and set up really nice workflows internally. You know, build up pretty customized internal Salesforce environments that are very slick. But you're right, like for the average user. You just don't want to develop that in-house expertise. You're paying that's what you're paying for the, the SaaS provider for, right? So you kind of Funnelcast, we're not trying to do UX. We're not really we, we have user interfaces and, and detailed reporting and integrated with Salesforce, but we're a small startup. We're not we can't broaden out to like do everything. We're very focused on on optimization, forecasting, analytics. And with a lot of our clients, uh, we actually roll side by side with some of these other, you'd think we would be competitive with a lot of the CRM analytics vendors out there, but we have such a different take on the way we present these statistical models. It, it's pretty complementary to what, what everybody else is out there. And I think that people productively use a lot of big tools like Clary and so forth with Salesforce and also with more specialized analytics providers like Funnel. Mm -hmm. It's like there's room in that ecosystem for for a lot of people and people are getting value out of all of it. They're using Salesforce basically as a really solid database. They're using tools like Clarity as a very nice user interface that their AEs like to use. And they're using specialized analytics providers like Funnelcast to get really deep insights into what into what's going on. There's there's pretty much room for everybody out there, I think. So speaking about the competitors, who are your competitors? Because I can see this this can go multiple ways, right? How are you defining a competitor? 
there are a number of vendors with whom we compete for mind share and dollars. No real competitors in terms of the capabilities we offer. Uh-huh. Um, from a high level, we look a lot like Clary, or we can sound a lot like Clary. We sound a lot like Salesloft. Uh, outreach occasionally outreaches now got sales analytics that they've added. So we compete with these guys because um, they are providing sales analytics, but they're not providing the kind of predictive analytics and insights that we provide in our application, which are really. But they are providing other things Mm -hmm. like nice user interfaces. So Bill mentioned a couple of companies that we are working alongside with at several clients right now, important customers of ours. So Yeah, so e- each of those vendors I've mentioned, we are we are in use in parallel with at multiple clients. And and it and it's working. Yeah. It, you so, know, we're not trying to do the user interface thing and they're getting good value out of a lot of the other aspects of those of those tools. People think of us as competing with SalesLoft and Clary because they do sales analytics and we do sales analytics, but it's it's not quite the same, you know. How does Funnelcast help the go-to-market teams collaborate? Is it mostly like the finance and revenue operations teams looking at various inputs and deciding what to do? Or are there other ways that you're connecting with the the sales or marketing teams to, to help them go to market as well? So the application is designed to be used by uh, sales leaders to help, you know, figure out where to put resources and coach individual deals uh, in order to figure out where to allocate resources and what to advance and when, but it's also designed to bridge the gap between you know when you when you do pl- uh, planning and staffing to help people understand what kinds of resources are required in order to meet a longer term goal. And so we find ourselves kind of uh, living in several camps. One is sales management, sales leadership, day to day blocking and tackling of deals. And two is uh, finance and operations when they want to set, you know, staffing plans, quotas, and uh, understand, you know, if what they're just trying to achieve is really achievable given the constraints that in their, you know, their prior history. You kind of start to delve into marketing a tiny bit, just in terms of like what's the lead generation that need to be in order to to get yeah, the goals. Yeah, we're just straddling that line right now of going into marketing. Yeah, we're definitely saying, look. The longer term the forecast is, the more relevant prospective pipeline is going to be deals that don't exist yet. And those have to come from somewhere. They're coming from marketing, generally speaking. So we're giving, you know, reasonable bounds on and odds of what types of flows need to be coming into sales accepted leads to achieve a given goal. And so that that can help marketing set their own goals. Frankly, personally, I think that's an underserved, that interface between sales and pre-sales is not analytically well-served, even by Funnelcast fully yet. There's a lot of opportunity there to do lots of cool stuff, I think. I think it's definitely underserved and it'd be interesting to to be able to connect that a little better because typically you come in from a marketing angle and you come from a sales angle and you're like, I hope these match up in the middle and do what they need to do. What are you thinking in terms of what you're building next? Uh, what's on the the product roadmap for you? Is it going well, we, in that direction or others? Well, it, we already mentioned it earlier. We're 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 really anxious to build a HubSpot HubSpot product. An integration with HubSpot is like that's just a boring engineering goal, but it's a big one for us. We we really want to. There's so many prospective clients of ours that that are on HubSpot. It's very popular, 
and we'd, we'd love to be there. We've had to say no to many of them, unfortunately. There's another area as well. The, Brian, you maybe want to talk about the Bayesian approach. As Bill mentioned, our ICP, our, our clients, we have a certain kind of transaction volume and people who have enough historic information to develop these kind of statistical process controls on their sales. You know, what about startups that don't have that much information yet or don't have any history or, or just mo- moving into a new product segment? One thing we've been kicking around is uh, the idea of using information that we have under contract with many of our clients. We have a really diverse set of a lot of SaaS heavy, but a lot of clients out there. And uh, many of them allow us to use in an anonymous fashion their data to develop models. And an idea going forward that's still just an idea, it's not a software product yet, but it would be to de- kind of develop like the same funnel cast model but with a prior, like you're in this business, you know, you're selling these widgets to these people. Well, we know approximately what your business should be like based on all this data that we've, we've got from the historic past. So we'll start you off with a prior model and then adjust that as information from your actual business dealings come in and build a, a posterior model as you go forward. So that's what we kind of are calling our Bayesian, our Bayesian product. And we, we would definitely like to get, get something like that uh, together not only for, for companies that want to kick off a sales force and equip them with some at least ballpark analytics with what they should expect, but also like you could imagine the investment community, like VCs looking for, like how could we put reasonable goals on sales teams for these companies that we're investing in, right? And, and so that uh, we see kind of a lot of opportunity there in the longer term. That's definitely a longer term project though. Even like benchmarking for companies with a, a larger sales force, that's very interesting. A little bit deeper what Brian said about investing because right now the market f- shifted completely to retention, right? In the post sale, and we didn't discuss this here. Is that somewhere on the roadmap? How are you thinking about your product as well? I mean, predictability in the retention space, you know, these days is also a big question, right? Um, everyone is GRR, NDR, and all of the other metrics that are probably more vital to, to their existence than acquisition itself, right? Some of our yes. important customers have that as their main product, <laughs> retention and, and customer success. We, of course, support them. And we see the changes in their business that have been happening, especially over the last mm-hmm. year. A few years ago, everybody was everything was booming and everybody's like just riding the wave. And now they're right. having to be very, very careful about getting things right. We model that, of course, but that's not a big part. Most of our customers right now are still interested in in new, right, Bill? Yeah, yeah. New, lo- new logo. The focus is new logo acquisition and expansion. Yeah, yeah. So we're pulled by, that way by customers. And, and many of those customers are customers that model retention for other companies <laughs> in, in their products, or some of them anyway. <laughs> I think acquisition was a problem before as well, right? A lot of companies, they struggled. I mean, of course, the propensity to buy was was higher because these budgets were, I don't want to say fat and endless, but I think people were having um, it, it, a little bit more buffer to make these decisions and try things before they decide whether they want to continue or not. But these days, I think it's the ratios between, you know, that you're your investment, I mean, your cost and your acquisition, right? So CAC to LTV, it's much harder to achieve the certain levels, right? So 
um, I would say probably retaining a customer's a lot of these companies, a lot of these industries is more important yeah, than acquisition. It, it, I mean, these days, especially, yeah. Right. And if you are an investor, you're very likely going to, you want to know whether you are in the trajectory to improve that ratio or not. Because if you're not, you start thinking, okay, maybe I should start setting up for, for that investment in my portfolio so I can collect uh, my multiple before that multiple goes yeah. down. So that's a pretty important decision for someone who manages the, the large portfolio of investment, knowing you know where your NDR, where your GRR and local retention will be. So since that's both why of you are are interested in ICP stuff, so much of of what we've done has come from our clients. You know, they gave us these great ideas. They're like, "Well, I wish we could just model this or whatever," and we're like, "Oh, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> we'll we'll do that." And so we have a lot of brainstorming sessions on a very geeky level with many of our clients. This came up the other day with one of them, and I thought it was a really interesting idea. So they proposed modeling an ideal customer. You know, normally you think of like uh, all these attributes associated with a potential customer, and then you look historically at, at all those attributes, and then you look at the ones that actually bought your widgets or your product or whatever. And they're like, what we're really interested in modeling is are the ones that renewed we could care less about the ones that bought it. We want to have an ICP on renewals, not not an ICP on on a new customer acquisition. Yeah. And I thought, well, yeah, that's a, actually a pretty interesting ICP model. We have not implemented that, but that's something that you guys probably think about all the time. That's a, it's a really neat idea. Yeah, and I would argue that probably Lizzie would love to have the same ICP model for partnership. <laughs> yeah, and and that's yeah, how yeah. it actually should work because I can tell you the partnership is almost like a company within the company. And that's now the unilateral across all the partners and channel sales entities you have. So having a segmentation in that space is equally important as having in the direct sale or in the post sale. Oh yeah, in the post sale, of course. Yeah. What I was going to say is like, yes, retention is an issue, but I think how customer acquisition was solved the last few years was like, we'll just hire more salespeople. And that is no longer an option. And so, or we'll throw more marketing budget at it. And so I still yeah, think there is a need to really figure out how do you have efficient customer acquisition. And part of that is to weed out some of the inefficiencies, even that sales process is still needed. There's there's problems everywhere. There's lots <laughs> of problems everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, you know, the mantra of hire more salespeople to sell more works when the market is expanding. Um, is sometimes when the market is not expanding, it's not so much, right? And have you actually seen an increased need for the tool? Like, how are you going to market, and how has that shifted? With you know, we haven't we haven't seen any decrease. If anything, our business is picking up. You know, now I can't build a statistical model here because <laughs> we we don't have enough data points. But I, I do see our business picking up. Lots more activity. You know, and our message, of course, is that you know you can become more efficient if you pay attention to the right things. So, you know, we have examples of, for example, a customer that had a, a, a massive difference in the productivity of opportunities they were starting in one of their business segments compared to another. And uh, it was about a 10 to 1 difference, which we measured similar to those, those win rate charts that I showed you before. But you, you coupled that with another 3 to 1 advantage in terms of average selling price. So they had a 30 to one differential. Which they kind of intuitively had a feel for, but they didn't really have any sound statistics around it. 
they wouldn't need us to tell them about the three to one on the, the average selling price, but the 10 to one, they kind of knew intuitively was, but, but they didn't know how severe the difference was. And when they realized that they were motivated to reallocate resources and focus only on the 30X market, I will say over the next two years now, I mean, I can't take all the credit for it. They were growing anyway, but they grew in terms of new logo acquisition, they grew by 30% over the next year. A massive growth without spending more by just reallocating resources. But, but yeah, and, and about the, the go-to-market, I mean, Filecast is not expensive. It's a, an affordable analytics tool, which is appealing. And it's that way because it's extremely focused. It gives people such a unique perspective on, you know, what are the biggest factors that have the biggest impact on the next quarter, the next year? We've been finding a lot of people find that appealing, even when they have lots of other tools, especially like, and as you we've mentioned before, like planning time, like what are we going to do next year? Uh, these wacky mathematicians might help us come up with something some some nice perspective that's pretty reasonable, uh, and oftentimes we're more conservative, which they don't like, <laughs> than they would like to. But it's often borne out, right? And and so I think that's been helping our strategy, even for the parts of our customer base that are finding their runways getting shorter and things things shorter. getting tighter. But yeah. we have we have other customers. One of our oldest clients is you know involved in. Can we name that client? Are we allowed to name clients, Bill? Like, yeah, we can. Uh, so we sure. work with yeah. the yeah, one can, source yeah. virtual. Uh, they're an old client of ours. They're a Workday uh, integrator and Workday customizer. And, the, and you know, the, their business is great, right? I mean, despite other tech SaaS parts of the world, employment-related companies, the employment has grown a lot in the United States in the last year. So there's just a lot more people being employed, which means these people have a lot more business, right? So it's not all... It's a really interesting mix right now of people who are very worried about the future and other people who are doing great. All right. I think uh, we want to move to kudos. What are the two names that you would probably, maybe more, you want to you wanna give, give a shout out in the industry? Kudos. Yeah. So, uh, well, we already said Salesforce is underutilized and I, I think more people should just use what they've got in Salesforce. It's, it's, it's their... Brian, you want to nominate one? Yeah, I'd say Gainsight. You, we mentioned uh, yeah. customer success and retention, right? And I think yeah. there are lots of companies yeah. that do things like yeah. Gainsight, but Gainsight's been around a long time. They have a pretty cool product. And um, I love the way they roll. So I, I really would say they're really helpful to people who want to help retain clients. I think you'll you'll add HubSpot oh, yeah. to that list. Can't, Salesforce you? and HubSpot. Once we get though, going yeah, with HubSpot, itching yeah. to get on HubSpot. There's a third one. Yeah, All right. <laughs> I knew something was missing on that list. You know, <laughs> they're great to partner with, and I I think it's interesting timing. I mean, they have plenty of mid market customers and enterprise that are moving up market and doing great there, but they have a lot of SMB customers. So, um, getting that integration and also thinking about how do you help those smaller customers is would be a good transition to whole marketplace um, definitely as well. want to go so, there for yeah. sure absolutely gotta go there yeah can i ask one last question how painful or unpainful is the onboarding process to funnel cast because that's always my top priority with any how much time you got <laughs> <laughs> you could sign up for it yourself right it, it's a self-serve sign up even with the salesforce integration it's a click-through agreement and we bill through stripe 
We use Salesforce authentication. We also use Okta. I should maybe I shouldn't say Okta. They're having so many troubles, but they, sometimes we use Okta for some things, and other times we use Salesforce and um, Stripe. And uh, it's it's real easy. We've actually had people who've tried it out and didn't become customers, but still said it was so easy to try out. We loved it. So it's it's super easy. In five minutes, you can have a connection to Salesforce established. The raw data will come in and you can start seeing win rate curves that you've never seen before on your business by your sales, you know, looking at by stages of your sales process. You get a lot of insight very quickly. There's a, a, a kind of a second level to that integration, which is when, you, when we're building models, people want to incorporate other elements that are not automatically pulled in, other fields in the, in the CRM. So, you know, we, we pull in the basics, but they may say, oh, well, we have this industry field or uh, this other, you know, business segment field that is really important to us. And we wouldn't know about that beforehand. So we got to go. It's not difficult to do, but it's more of a, a probably about a, you know, a 30 minute conversation to figure out what are those fields. And then it's, you know, a few seconds to make the connection and, and get that established. You should be shouting that from the rooftops because I don't. Demetrius may know other tools that are that simple to integrate, but I certainly haven't come across one before. So that's incredible. Well, if you've got a Salesforce instance, we'll be happy to show you on your data. It's it'll take us five minutes. I'm I'm gonna this go awesome. and uh, talk to my RevOps person right after this <laughs> and be like, "Hey, let's go do this." <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. It was a lot of fun, a little bit different direction than we've gone before with the the statistics. So it's been a really great we conversation. We really appreciate it. It was really fun. I'd love to talk to Thank both you. of you more about ICP stuff because it's it's an interest of mine that we, you know, some just follow up on that. Yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. Yeah, probably that's something we can, we can discuss next time. Also, I would love to d- dive deeper into the data itself and how to structure this effectively. So for now, I just want to thank you for, for attending and, and sharing your thoughts. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the RepTech Podcast. Please subscribe on the listening platform of your choice and leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. 